Well, good morning and happy Mother's Day again. I uh, hope it's a great day for you uh, as we go. Why don't we, why don't we pray as we uh, come to this fantastic uh, little passage in Colossians. Father, we thank you that uh, we can go back to basics over these uh, few weeks. We pray, please, that you might encourage us, you might unite us in love, uh, and that you might help us to fully appreciate and understand the full riches that we have in the treasure that is Jesus Christ, uh, what Paul wants for the Colossians. We pray that we might want for ourselves and for others. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is life all about? I don't know if that's a question that you ponder deeply every day, you put much time into it at all, or you haven't even thought about it, well, ever, or not for a while. Uh, for most people, they just brace through life without giving it much attention at all. It doesn't seem to really bother them that they don't know what life is for or what their life is, where their life is going. There's plenty of good distractions. And sometimes just getting through the day occupies my mind well enough that I don't need to put any real thought into answering long-term kind of questions. Uh, you know, the only thing that I need to worry about is uh, whether it's a special date, like Mother's Day, is that today? And <laughs> uh, when I know that I'll have to do something nice for someone or I'll get in a lot of trouble. Uh, <laughs> Although I suspect that even for those kind of people like me who don't reflect deeply every moment of the day, that there are still times of, of reflection especially when there's a lot going on, there's drama with the kids, you're stressed out, things are happening, you throw up your hands and say, what is it all about? What am I doing? What's this all for? And it's the kind of question that, if you haven't heard, um, uh, Bill Rafferty passed away very suddenly on uh, Thursday morning and uh, Pat's going to be asking over the next few weeks, so what, where do we go now? What, what, where am I? I'm here alone in my home and uh, what is it all about? But for others, that question of what life's about is the kind of question that drives them mad, thinking about it, and they just wrestle with it and worry about it, and it can even lead to despair and depression depending on the answers that they come to. Uh, even during this week, um, there's a young lady I'm uh, associated with who uh, tried to kill herself, um, failed um, in the attempt, uh, but it's this despair of what's the point of life? Why, why even bother? What's it all for? What is it that you live for? For many mums, it's their kids. That's what they live for. Uh, for their husbands or the men, it's the big boy toys. Uh, is it money? Is it success? Is it reputation? Is it you're standing amongst your peers or in your community? Uh, what if we were to ask the people who were closest to you about you? That might be a scary thought. If you were to ask all your best friends or your family what your life was about, what do you think they would say? Ooh, um, the last couple of weeks we ventured in this wonderful letter that Paul wrote to a church in a place called Colossae, which is up near where the Anzacs would fight at Gallipoli 2,000 years later. Uh, they were a group of Christians that he'd never met. Uh, he's only heard about them, and he's just so excited to find that they've become Christians as a group in this town, and he writes this letter to encourage them and strengthen them in their new life that they've begun. And so far, what have we seen? Uh, that he's reminded them what a Christian is. Uh, it's someone who knows something. They know Jesus. It's someone who has new priorities in life. They, they aim to please Jesus. 
But more fundamentally, we saw it's someone who God has done something to. God has saved them. God has bought them. He has forgiven them. And he's called them out of one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of the sunny loves, into Jesus' kingdom. And then last week, we saw how Paul reminds them that uh, about Jesus, whose kingdom they now belong to. Jesus, who is the great Lord of all, by whom everything exists. He made it all. The heavens, the earth, everything was all made by him. It was all made for him, for his pleasure, for his purposes, to do with as he wills, uh, to delight in that Jesus. But it's also that Jesus who's the king over everything, who is the great redeemer of humanity, who gave his life as a sacrifice, that we might know forgiveness for our sins, that we might have a deep and personal and intimate relationship with our maker, Jesus, both the Lord, the creator, the king, but also Jesus, redeemer, saviour, brother, friend. But where does that leave us? Uh, Why is he telling them about what a Christian is and who Jesus is? I mean, they have become Christians, so shouldn't they have figured that out already? Uh, well, he's not. He's reminding them, and he's reminding them because those two realities of who Christians are and who Jesus is, if they're true, they create a whole radical shift to what life is all about now. Knowing Jesus and knowing who you are as his person should at least give you a whole new purpose in life. And it's there in verse 28. We proclaim him, that's Jesus, we proclaim Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labour struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. Uh, Paul talks about uh, what our aim in life, but he talks about his own aim in life and that, to present people perfect in Christ. His vision, his motivation, the thing that gets him up in the morning and keeps him going is seeing people come to know and grow in their relationship with Jesus. And not just a little bit, but so they come to perfection in Jesus. Completely saw the M word, maturity. Maturity in Jesus. Men, women, children, uh, adults, grandparents, great-grandparents, all of them need to know Jesus in their lives. All of them can know Jesus in their lives. And Paul's aim is to present them before his Lord ready. Ready for him, grown up in him. And I want to suggest that we shouldn't just leave that attitude to him. That is to say that Christianity is not and it cannot be a private religion. Uh, It's not just a matter of your own personal faith about what you may or may not believe about God or or what you think he believes about you. Uh, There's a view out there in the community that all matters of faith should never be discussed. You know, you have your own private thoughts and feelings and everyone else has their own private thoughts and feelings and, you know, we should never discuss it. But Christianity is and it has to be evangelistic by nature. And yet for those who are not Christians, they wish it were anything but evangelistic. Uh, it's been a hot topic conversation uh, recently because of the review of uh, scripture in schools or SRE, uh, Special Religious Education. And there have been many voices protesting very loudly on both sides of the equation, both against SRE, against scripture and for scripture. On the anti-scripture side, uh, some of the voices are just anti-all religion and superstition and they're on a campaign to wipe out all mention of God uh, from the education system. 
Uh, others fear that our nation may become yet another war zone for religion and they're a bit edgy about anything that might say there's a difference between one person and another person. Uh, others protest that school's just not the place to have these kind of religious discussions, uh, that there's no place for faith-based education in what they see as secular classrooms, although by secular they don't mean secular, they mean something else, they, they mean godless. On the other side of the debate, those who are pro-scripture, there's a variety of voices too. Lots of people are pro-scripture, but for all different reasons. There are those who are pro-freedom of speech or religion and see any attempt to silence any subject, be it religious or otherwise, as an attack on basic human rights. And so, you know, you know, let the Christians and the Muslims and whoever speak because, you know, that's right. There are those who want their children to receive a good moral education. There are those who just look back fondly on their days of scripture. That lovely old lady... And wasn't she nice that she gave us lollies and uh, I want my kids to experience that kind of thing. What's the big deal? But the reason that Christians are so keen on having scripture in school is because it's the golden opportunity to educate kids in the faith whose parents at least nominally tick the box Christian and to reach out to those kids with the gospel, um, to those kids whose parents, for whatever reason, sign them up for these classes. In other words, Christians want these kids to become and or grow as Christians, which is part of our bigger concern to see all people everywhere become and grow as Christians. So if you understand God rightly, if you understand his message, if you understand that people start out of relationship with God and that the only way they can know God and be safe for eternity is Jesus, and if you understand it's the love of God which saves you and brings you reconciliation, then it gives you a new heart, a new heart for those around about you. And that leads to a new longing, wanting, wishing, praying that anyone and everyone else could come to know this great love, this great saviour, this great king too. And that new longing ought to turn into motivation act to do something, to see people come to share that same relationship and life that you have. But there's something, there's one thing that most Christians worry about when it comes to seeing that longing turn action. There's this big barrier that gets in the way. Why it is that we don't, we don't do it? We might want the world, we might even pray for the world to become Christians and people to come and flock and join us, but we're not going to do anything about it because of one thing, fear. Fear of opposition, fear of being put down, fear of being thought of as stupid, fear of being disliked or fear of even worse, despised. And that certainly is a real possibility. And Paul, as he writes this letter, acknowledges to these new Christians that it's not easy going sometimes having this as your aim in life. There are plenty of struggles. He's not some sort of idealist who thinks that everything he touches turns to gold and as soon as he speaks about Jesus with anything, they're going to go, oh, I want to worship him too. You know, he's not you know, got a sort of overly idealistic view that, uh, you know, what he says is the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth and everyone will suddenly turn. It's not simple. In fact, he describes his life as a servant of Jesus as one of suffering. Did you notice verse 24? It's a very weird statement, uh, one that's caused a lot of confusion uh, for people over the ages and Bible study groups. It's the kind of verse that people just go, I don't know what the heck he's talking about and they argue back and forward uh, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24. For some reason my Bible closed. There you go. 
1.24. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. What does he mean? He fills up in his body what's lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Uh, is he saying somehow Jesus' death wasn't enough to pay for sins? That actually we do need to do something in order to be saved? Jesus didn't really do the job that he says he did? Is that, is that what he's saying that was lacking? No, what he's saying is that though Jesus has made full atonement for sins, what is lacking is people knowing about it, hearing about it. There's still work to be done in communication, and that is costly and demanding work. Uh, Paul himself suffered greatly for it. It doesn't mean he, he went around self-flagellating or beating himself up or anything like that. No, he, he got in trouble as he talked about Jesus. He's been in a lot of trouble for Jesus, and he knows that he'll always cause issues wherever he goes having that kind of aim in life. And if you've ever read through the New Testament, you'll know it's pretty drastic stuff that Paul faced. Uh, he was arrested lots of times. Uh, there were murder attempts and plots on his life. He was shipwrecked three times. Uh, he faced starvation uh, and opposition and hate and he was taken to court, which if his aim in life was anything other than presenting people perfect in Jesus, he would have given up a long time ago. In fact, we find out in the last sentence of this letter that he was writing from jail arrested for going about doing this. But he says it's all worth it. And even more, he says it's a privilege and a joy that keeps him going and pushing on, persevering. Here how he describes what he does, verse 29. To this end I, I labour, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. So it's not just Paul's doing something and that God's left him alone to do it. No, God, he says God is at work. God is active in this world. He's carrying out his plans and purposes. And the normal way that God does that is by involving you and me if we are his, in his work. And that's such a great privilege. You see, it's not that God just leaves us to get on with stuff. He's with us. And he gives us the strength, the courage, the energy, the perseverance to keep on doing it. Now, we're not all apostles, like Paul or pastors of churches who are paid to tell others about Jesus. I mean, my job, I suppose, I've got to do it in order to keep you guys happy. But <laughs> and there's a particular responsibility and suffering that comes because of those roles and positions. Uh, in the underground churches in China, it's the pastors who are being arrested and tortured, many, many cases of it. Um, but the Chinese government is well aware of who all the members of these churches are. It's just that they think that they'll break their spirit by taking the leaders out. In our own city, it's the leaders of the church, the archbishop, the dean, the senior ministers who always wear the criticisms. And we need to be praying for them that God will give them special strength and endurance. But while they've been set apart for Jesus, serving Jesus in particular ways, it's something actually all Christians are called to. In fact, he changes in verse 28 from... I do this, I do that, to we. This is what we do together. It's our aim together as a church, as Christ's people. And so we can all be praying for people who we know. We can all be giving an answer to everyone who asks us, why are we a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Why do you go to church? Although sometimes you might want to give the honest answer if it's like uh, one man I heard of who was quite happily lying in bed one Sunday morning. It's 
force, nudging, saying, you've got to get out of bed, you've got to go to church. Well, I don't like it. I don't want to go. Get, get over, you've got to go to church. Why? Well, I hate the people. They don't like me. I don't like them. That guy at the back, he smells. <laughs> Those ladies at front, I oh, just can't stand them and stuff. She's saying, you've got to get up and go to church. Why? Because you're the minister. <laughs> I'm not saying you should lie if that's your reason to go to church, but <laughs> I take it the reason that we do these things and, and is that the gospel changes us so that we think and we live and we breathe for God. I mean, look how incredible and valuable Paul thinks this gospel is, this message about Jesus is. Verse 27. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, so the non-religious people, the people who hated God from all over the world, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the glorious riches of God, the hope of glory in Jesus. Or chapter 2, verse 2. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of this universe. The pearl, great price would be worth selling everything for. All the glory and the blessings, they're all found in Jesus. God's message of salvation is a glorious, precious, wonderful treasure. And we have it not so that we can hoard it to ourselves. Precious. (laughs) We're not supposed to turn into Gollum. (laughs) But so that we can generously offer it to the world around us. But how do we go about it? How can we possibly even start thinking? I mean, I'm presenting everyone perfect in Christ. I mean, that's a big task. That's a lot of people. Everyone? Really? Perfect? That's a very high aim for a lot of people. How, how do you even go about that? What's the method? Cricket bat? <laughs> uh, I can think of several. Anyway, yeah. He says it's just by talking. Verse 28, we proclaim Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Proclaiming, speaking, talking, talking about Jesus, about who he is, about what he means, about what he's done, about what he's going to do, about his promises, about his ability to hold to his promises. When Paul says proclaim, he's not talking about getting up in the pulpit He's talking about conversation, actually speaking about Jesus and our relationship with him with others. And can I say, and this is vitally important, no one can be saved without knowing the message. It was there in that reading from Isaiah, it's in Romans chapter 10, Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one who they've not heard? How can they hear without someone speaking to them? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's why it's so imperative that he reminded them what a Christian was back at the start. Someone who knows something. In fact, the changes that Jesus brings in people come through that message. People need to hear, they need to know the message of Jesus. You may be the only person, your friends, your colleagues, your family, your associates, your street, 
know who's a Christian. Now that doesn't mean going and tackling, getting the cricket bat out, having a bit of whack, you know, getting the judo hold if you did that as a kid, you know, kind of doing the big flip and, and locking them down saying, you listen up good and proper and I'm going to hold you here till you convert. It's, it, nor does it mean doing what the ISIS people are doing overseas, holding a gun to someone's head and saying, acknowledge our way or die. It's certainly not that. But it does mean looking for opportunities and even making the invitations to come where they might hear from someone else if you're too embarrassed. Use the network. I love the teamwork that we've got at church. Some people are behind the scenes people. Others are good inviters. Others are good explaining. And there's plenty of easy invites that the ladies, 50s afternoon on the 30th. Uh, terrific time. We're going to turn, we're going to knock down the hall and rebuild Barney's Milk Bar. <laughs> Going to be heaps of fun, wonderful chance for women to hear about Jesus. The Xbox night, which is not just for teenagers. You can come and learn why they like to shoot aliens and race fast cars and stuff. In here, we're going to you know, have Xboxes and things set up all around. Very easy invites. We're proclaiming Jesus together. There's been a long-running debate in Anchor churches about whether proclaiming Jesus is just pointing out the positives or whether you should give some of the warnings too. Should you only speak nice things about Jesus or should you say the hard stuff as well? Uh, should you just go around saying, Jesus loves you and he wants you, he died for you and leave it at that? Or should you warn people of the dangers that without Jesus there's judgment and hell? Well, for Paul, he says there's got to be both. Because look at the second way of speaking on his list. He says, proclaiming, admonishing. Admonishing uh, sounds a bit rough, telling people they're wrong. He's not saying we should slam people for being idiots when they disagree with us. It's got to be done kindly and in love. But if the gospel is true, then any other message that contradicts that is false. Uh, next week we're going to see some of the false messages that confuse and distort and distract people from the truth of Jesus. Messages which he says in chapter 2 verse 4 might be fine sounding arguments but are actually lies which will destroy you and those we're talking with. When we share Jesus we need the positive and the negative. Paul admonishes as well as teaches. He contradicts as well as explains and encourages. He says this is right and this is wrong. Now, that's an unpopular thing in today's world, which is all about affirming everyone, which says there's no right and wrong, there's only opinion, and you just call it your thing, and, but we have to do it. He says, carefully, lovingly, but we have to do it. The negative is always the more powerful argument. I mean this and not that. Saying the not that clarifies what the this is. I mean, Jesus, he did it all the time. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You go, oh, fantastic, he can get us to God, he's got life in him, that's excellent. Well done, Jesus, we love, we love that. He follows that up with, but no one comes to the Father except through me. You arrogant punk, what do you mean you're saying you're the only way? <laughs> that's, the negative is always more powerful because it clarifies and it excludes and divides. It's costly, but it needs to be done if we're to present people perfect in Christ. But the final part of the method, he says, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching. Teaching, not lecturing at people, but taking the time to patiently explain things. How is it that the gospel works? How is it that Jesus can pay for us? How does one man 
dying 2,000 years ago help us? We have to listen to last week's sermon uh, to find that out, if you can't explain. Um, how is it he gives us a new start with God? Taking the time to answer people's objections and questions. And if you don't know the answer to something, admit it and say, I don't know, but I'll go and find out and then go and Google it or come and ask me and I'll give you the answer. <laughs> There's a diligence that we have to have to make sure that we get our facts straight ourselves and that we work on the genuine concerns and questions that others have so that they can come to the truth. Proclaiming, admonishing, teaching. Passing on the words which gave you life. Words about your King and your Saviour. And we do it all with the hope that God might choose to work in us and through us and our words to bring others to life in Jesus just as he worked through others who spoke the message to us to bring us to life. Whoever that person or those people were, your Sunday school teacher, your mum and dad, next door neighbour, someone at work, someone took the time to tell you that Jesus loves you that he paid for your sins. And that's something we can share with us, this great treasure. That's what we hope for. This is what we pray for. This is the change that God works in us when we come to know him and his love and mercy in Jesus, when we come to know Jesus, the Lord and ruler to whom everything belongs and to whom all must give account. Now, I don't know why you came to church today. I can look around and think it's a pretty small day. I assume that's because of Mother's Day. And I don't know why you're here. Why aren't you with your mother? Did you come out of habit? Did you come because you were dragged along or invited by someone else? Did you come because it's Mother's Day and you either want to avoid her or because you think it's a really good thing to thank God for and so come to church? (laughs) Was it because you're a committed Christian already and you love coming along? Was it because you're struggling in life, wrestling with issues or questions and you just wanted answers and you thought maybe this would help? Is it because you were curious about what was going on here? Is it because you've got some good friends here and it's good to hang out? My guess is that we all came for a variety of reasons. But whatever the reason you came in for, the real issue I'd love you to go home with and wrestle with and not be satisfied with yourself until you come to an answer is what are you living for? Who are you living for? What are your hopes, your dreams, your prayers? And it may be that you come to the realisation that you're not living for anything. Don't be depressed. There is someone who is worth living for. It may be that you come to the reason, realisation that the thing that drives you is something from this world. The money, the career, family, the things that the advertisers and pundits and gurus tell you to live for. Self-fulfilment, a hot new body, Eternal youth, carefree living. You'll never get them. They're all unsatisfying in the end because they're all going to perish and fade. 
But worse, they're misleading you away from what your life truly should be about, what you were made for, who you were made for, for Jesus, the one who died for you, the one who owns you, the one who loves you, the one in whom all treasures lie, the one who alone can satisfy, the one whose message you should long to know and cherish more and more deeply, the one whose message this world needs to hear and respond to. What are you living for? Come to him. Live for him. Long for others to know him and become mature in him. Father, we thank you for your glorious wisdom and love, for the great treasure that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you it's not a secret anymore, it's no longer a mystery, that you've revealed to us the answers to life, the universe and everything. And we pray that we'll be honest with ourselves and with you as we think about what we're living for, who we're living for, and we pray that we might turn away from things and purposes that don't deliver and that we might understand, we might accept, we might love the fact that the purpose in life is all tied up in you. If we don't know you yet, please, we pray this will be the day where we turn back. If we are yours, we pray that we'll recommit to living and serving the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the greatest treasure in this world. Amen.